Hello, I'm Ken Redquart, and this is Mining Biblical Truth. Welcome back this week. This week, I'm excited that we're studying the uh, book of Jonah as we delve now into some of the minor uh, prophets. And this week's presentation is called Unrepentant. We're going to start out this week with something uh, purely fun. I used to teach the Bible to uh, children, and one of the fun uh, things we did was try to summarize the book of the Bible in six words or less and see if you can uh, have someone else uh, guess which book you're talking about. And Jonah is one of the, the most fun books to do that with because it, it's such a, uh, a fabulous uh, story, and of course it has many unique uh, aspects uh, to it. But I just wanted to share with you some of the the, the fun short ways uh, I came up with to uh, hint uh, at the book of Jonah. My favorite is Miss the Mission, Gone Fishing. Others I came up with were first too wet, then too dry. Lots revealed him, fish concealed him uncooperative to unrepentant and evader to non-repenter or with six words skedaddled swallowed wallowed bellowed blessed and unconfessed all of which are sequential stages uh, that jonah goes through all right so let's first take a look at uh, a classic outline uh, of the book uh, this book has a lot of chiastic structures uh, uh, within it, and I'm going to summarize those for you in more uh, detail uh, in a PDF that hopefully will be available soon on our uh, website at biblebinding.org. Uh, but this uh, brief overview uh, uh, shows uh, that in Part A, Jonah's commissioned to go to Nineveh, and we see his disobedience. Part B, we have uh, Jonah uh, and the pagan sailors, uh, and Jonah admitting sin at the center of that. In, in C, uh, Jonah's grateful, uh, beautiful prayer in 117 to 210. And then matching these are A prime, Jonah re recommissioned to go to Nineveh, uh, and his obedience after the task is uh, more fully explained to him by God. Uh, who said, Arise, go to the great city, and Jonah arose and went. And B prime Jonah and the pagan Ninevites, which matches the pagan sailor segment. And at the center of that, the king admits his sin. And to C prime, we have Jonah's resentful, mean spirited prayer in chapter 4, 1 through 4. And then at the end, instead of in the middle, we have the climax, which is. Yahweh's lesson to the unrepentant Jonah in 4, 5 through 11. Now, Nineveh, as shown on this uh, map at the upper right, uh, was far away uh, from Israel, but nearly not nearly as far as Tarshish, where Jonah was headed, uh, which uh, many uh, speculate was somewhere uh, uh, in, in or near Spain. 
Uh, let's take a, a, a brief reminder here that um, we're, we're dealing with a period of history uh, when Jeroboam II was king of Israel and Uzziah uh, king of uh, Judah in the period 793 to 753 B.C. Uh, there's also evidence uh, uh, about this uh, era that provides some insight from the annals of the kings of Assyria, uh, which are summarized here over this uh, time period. Uh, in the, the first king here from 810 to 783, Adad-Narari III, um, Syria was controlled as a vassal state of Assyria and probably includes time of the Jonah's prophecy to Jeroboam uh, II in the Book of Kings. So uh, this is uh, followed by uh, a middle section of a, a quiet time politically uh, between the countries when there were no documented uh, attacks uh, by Assyria. And so it's possible that Jonah's visit occurred just before that and was the explanation for why it was a peaceful period. And then, of course, it's culminated in 726 to 722 B.C. by Shemaneser V taking Israel into exile. So um, uh, Jonah's uh, um, uh, visit was uh, probably in the range of 40 to 50 years before uh, the coming end of Israel. I think it's interesting to look here at, at the uh, comparison of Israel and Assyria, Jonah and the pagan sailors, uh, and in this uh, comparative list, uh, we find Jonah sleeping while the sailors are working hard to battle the storm. Jonah's not praying, whereas all the sailors are praying to their gods. Jonah's not concerned. The sailors are terrified. Uh, Jonah knows the truth about what's happening, um, whereas the sailors have to cast lots to get the truth out of him. Uh, Jonah puts the sailors at risk, uh, but the sailors are reluctant to kill Jonah even after they find out about his guilt. Jonah has no fear of the Lord, whereas the sailors do fear the Lord. They especially feared the Lord in regard to taking Jonah's life. And then after being saved from the storm, the sailors sacrifice. And uh, Jonah does not. The gospel link here is the sailors express the desire that innocent blood not perish. But that is exactly what God had determined must be done for the salvation of mankind the blood sacrifice of the innocent son. The sailors are acting like uh, a non-Jewish character in one of Jesus' parables. Which one? You can pause the tape here if you want to think about that. But I would say it's the Good Samaritan. Jonah is one of the uncaring Israelites who passed by the injured man. What do we learn uh, from how the sailors deal with pending disaster? Well, they, they don't wallow in self-pity. They don't berate God. Instead, they pray to him. 
They don't t target the culprit uh, for vengeance. They seek the common good and they give praise when saved. It's also uh, interesting to look at the comparison of responses to God. We have a lot of obedience on the left in, the, in, that, in the fact that the, the weather, the sea, all the sailors, the fish, the king, all the Ninevites, the vine, the worm, and the east wind all obey the Lord. Uh, but on the other side, we have Jonah, the chosen man of God. So who does God choose to share his mercy? He chooses the servant who needs the most mercy. <laughs> Culturally prejudiced, self-righteous, uncaring, with wrong motives, and a bad attitude. So God's mercy overcomes our reluctance, prejudices, and small thinking. I'm sure we've all had times when uh, God has had to overcome those things in us. When we disobey, we go down. The Hebrew word Yerod, like Jonah, who went down to the shore, down into the bowels of the ship twice, down into the watery depths, down into the bowels of the fish. And the word Yerod means to be brought down. And disobedience is what brings us down before God. And it appears again in 2.6, down literally to the land of bars, an eternal prison metaphor. I was also intrigued by the rebuke of the captain. You know, he does not rebuke his gods. He does not rebuke the wind. He does not rebuke the crew. He rebukes Jonah. Why? Because he was sleeping instead of crying out to his God. This may be why Jonah called himself initially a Hebrew, not a prophet, because he was embarrassed. The other intriguing thing when you look at the Hebrew uh, is that uh, where the storm is mentioned, it's in Hebrew, it's called Ra, which doesn't mean storm. It means evil. The storm was so severe that they deemed it to be of supernatural origin. This is related to the Hebrew word sayar, uh, with the same consonants, um, translated uh, uh, tempest or tempestuous. Uh, but sayar is also related to sar, meaning prince, often used in relation to Satan as prince of this world. The word Ra appears again in chapter 4, verse 6. God appoints a plant to save Jonah from Ra. Not from the heat or the sun, but from evil. Translated discomfort. But what if it implies to save him from the evil of being angry without just cause? And why is it noted that Jonah went east of the city? So he presumably entered, since he came from the west, he presumably entered from the west, crossed the city, and then left uh, to the east side. But I believe every detail is in the Bible for a reason. And uh, one thing I'm intrigued by is east to west and west to east movements. When Cain was expelled, uh, he went east of Eden. There's a symbolic nature of direction in the Bible. In general, it is good to go from east to west, like Abraham. 
the gospel was mainly spread from east to west. To go into the temple or tabernacle required going from east to west because the entrance was on the east where the sun rose. The other intriguing thing is the shelter Jonah built uh, is referred to as a sukkah. Is this symbolic? Well, it's related to Sakoth, an alternative name for the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorated the people living in sukkahs as they did during the wilderness wanderings. So is Jonah uh, exiling himself into the wilderness here? Another very common word uh, in the book is the word gadol, translated great or greatness. It's used in relation to the city of Nineveh, not just once, but four times. So it's really emphasized. It's also used for the wind, the tempest, God's power, Jonah's trouble, the nobles, uh, the greatest people in Nineveh, and Jonah's anger. The same word in Hebrew is used in relation to the sailors' fear of the Lord. The sailors were greatly affected by this experience, leading them to make sacrifices. How many became believers in Yahweh, the creator God, do you think? I think there had to be some. This word is also related to the Hebrew word gadal, having the same consonants, meaning to grow. It's used in relation to the plant, which Jonah did not make grow. Jonah worships the plant as he worships his nation. But just as God uh, made the plant grow, uh, not Jonah, God made the nation grow, not Jonah. God is sovereign over growth of both. God wants Jonah to gadal into gadol, to grow into greatness. Jonah has no commitment. What happens when we have no commitment to God's will? We miss out on the blessings of partnering with God. We are a bad example, misrepresenting our Lord. We become hard-hearted, desensitized. We lose integrity and trust. What happens when we commit to God's will? Well, we take healthy responsibility, as shown in one twelve. We lead others to faith in one thirteen to sixteen. We avoid a painful time out, like one seventeen. We grow in our prayer life, two one through nine, and we partner with God, three one through nine, and we see lives changed, three ten. Uh, this slide shows a uh, comparison of ancient idols and uh, our modern uh, idols, although uh, many of these things on the, on the right that are modern idols also were idols to the, to the uh, ancients as well. Uh, Jonah 2.8 says, Those who worship worthless idols turn their back on steadfast love, which here is specifically the Hebrew word shesed, uh, meaning uh, also uh, loving kindness. And I'm using a combination of translations there. Uh, this Jonah's statement uh, applied to himself at the end. What was his idol? Well, his idol was clearly nationalism. Uh, it was the Israel as a nation state. And for him, nation was his first love. And God was his second love. 
How then is the plant a symbol of the nation? Majona worships the plant and mourns its death. The plant has a temporary existence, which is also true of the nation's state that Jonah worships. Due to its, its lack of loving God for his loving kindness, Israel cannot go unpunished. And Jonah is worshiping what is temporary rather than what is eternal. Actually, the, 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 uh, also the, the growing up of the, of the plant is possibly related to the um, uh, growth in repentance uh, of the Ninevites, which will result in their flourishing for a while. But then the death of the plant um, possibly symbolizes the fact that eventually Nineveh is going to be punished. God knows that. And he wants uh, Jonah to see that both Nineveh and Israel have punishment uh, in their future. So the plant acts as a motive check for Jonah. And we see how it symbolizes the nations. So are our motives in conformity with God's motives? Jeremiah 12, 2 says, You have planted them, and they have taken root and prospered. Your name is on their lips, but you are far from their hearts. And Jesus said, uh, These people speak to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The other key question is here is do you well do you do well to be angry that God asked Jonah twice? Calls for introspection by Jonah. It's similar to what God asked Cain. Why are you angry? So here's your challenge question for week twelve. Um, the uh, in the story of Jonah, uh, uh, this is the question I asked last week. In the story of Jonah, we see two versions of Jonah, the disobedient runaway and the obedient but unrepentant prophet. Can you think of a New Testament parable that has the same two character types? I think this is uh, the runaway younger son in the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, the run, runaway younger son in the beginning is Jonah. And the grudgingly obedient, hard-hearted older son in the end is the latter Jonah. Jonah is not wholehearted towards God, not fully re repentant, not committed to God's will. So do we repent before God calls us or only after he calls us? There are many opinions about this. Is God's calling necessary to truly repent? if true repentance requires us to be wholehearted to God. Which comes first, grace or repentance? Well, one answer by Philip uh, Riken is, true repentance is grace responsive. So in Jonah's first prayer, when we look back at that, was he truly repentant? This reminds me of a story that I used to, to, to share with uh, children involving uh, misbehavior causing a, a timeout to uh, sit and think about their uh, 
uh, behavior. Um, and during that time out, uh, the father's in the other room and he's, uh, he yells out to his son, are you still sitting? And I was, are you obeying? And the son replies, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. This reminds me of Jonah because he obeys physically, but not with his heart. On the inside, he still doesn't want the Ninevites to be spared. So are we obeying on the outside, but not on the inside, not wholeheartedly? Having received loving kindness, just said, uh, to what degree are we sharing it? Ultimately, Jonah should not be remembered for the great fish, but rather for a great God of mercy and patience. Psalm 32, 1, 2 says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin, and whose spirit is no deceit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for uh, the example of uh, Jonah. Help us to uh, take it to heart uh, to motivate us to be wholehearted uh, towards you, totally committed to, to your will, um, content uh, to wait for your justice, celebrating your mercy, um, for you are good and your steadfast love lasts forever. In Jesus' name, amen. And so here's our challenge question for week 13. What is the, the symbolism of fatted cows of Bashan in Amos 4.1? And a little bonus question. What well-known 20th century American thought leader famously quoted Amos 5.24? Uh, thanks for watching. Please subscribe, uh, click like, uh, especially... Uh, Please consider sharing with a friend. As you know, we've, we've changed uh, YouTube channels. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, we appreciate you uh, spreading the word if you uh, enjoyed this presentation. Uh, you can also contact us privately at info at biblewining.org, uh, which is our new uh, website. Uh, we hope to have more materials available there soon. Thanks so much for watching and have a, a blessed week.